Please rise for the reading of God's word from Isaiah chapter 26. The first six verses. Hear now God's word. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God will appoint salvation for walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation which keeps the truth may enter in. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah the Lord is everlasting strength. For he brings down those who dwell on high, the lofty city. He lays it low, he lays it low to the ground, he brings it down to the dust. The foot shall tread it down, the feet of the poor, and the steps of the needy. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. You may be seated. There are many songs recorded in Scripture, but none of them would make it on our pop charts. In fact, most of them wouldn't make it in our churches. They're too long, and they address unusual subjects. They do have the advantage, though, of being infallibly inspired and authoritative. And this song probably won't get a Grammy, but it will live forever. Nothing in these lyrics point to a specific event in the history of Israel or Judah. The prophet seems to be reflecting on the broad lessons of redemptive history as contrasted with general world history. He's primarily thinking about the works that Yahweh has done for his people. As a result, a regular pattern reveals itself, which calls for praise to God uh, and inviting further reflection. And And it ends on a clear note of eschatological hope. Now, the word eschatological or eschatology just refers to the future, to the study of the future things or the last things. And so this song is going to end on a very positive note about the future. In the preceding two chapters of Isaiah, we are told of the overthrow of a mighty city. We're told that there also is another city that is upheld by God. It's as though the prophet were contrasting these two cities, showing the imperishable nature of the one in, in, and the sure doom of the other. On another day, perhaps we could tell the tale of two cities like Nacogdoches and Nacogdoches. We, uh, we think of those kind of comparisons. Well, this is a different kind of comparison. Today we're going to consider two other cities, the city of God and the city of man, as did Augustine in his book, uh, The City of God. The first six verses, which we just read, we're going to try to look at all, all the verses here, all 21 verses very quickly today, just to walk through this chapter of Scripture. Um, but the first six verses open with praise for the strong city. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God will appoint salvation for walls and bulwarks. So the first point of this song is that, the, is that the fall of one city or nation should remind God's people of the invincibility of another city. 
of the kingdom of God. This one is often called Zion, and as the city of God represents what he is building for his people for all eternity. We should see the church or the kingdom of God in this song. You might recall from Hebrews chapter 11, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place which he would receive, out to the place that he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise, for he waited for the city which has foundations, which builder and maker is God. So from really from the beginning, but also in Abraham, we see God making promises about a city, about a nation, if you will, or a kingdom that he is building. And he's building it all through history. As history marches along, nations come and go, cities rise and fall, but there is this one kingdom, this one city, this one kingdom being built little by little over time and it's an eternal city and there are citizens of this particular city a description follows which indicates the source and strong nature of this particular city this city does not have ordinary walls and bulwarks or towers to protect it rather it says salvation that is Deliverance granted by God is the force that makes this city strong. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So again, I want you to be thinking today about the fact that the church and that you as a member of this city, of this kingdom, that this is being described of who we are as the citizens of this kingdom and this city. This is where we live. This is our strength. This is our hope. This is what encourages us no matter what's going on around us. Verse 2, open the gates that the righteous nation which keeps the truth may enter in. You see, there's always room in this city for more people. Even entire nations can come through these gates. They who keep the truth or remain faithful. They are marked by righteousness and steadfastness. The borders for the city of God have no geographic limits, neither are they limited by time. This is how the gospel of Christ blesses the nations. Verse 3, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you, for he trusts in you. And so the song is focused on the blessings that are enjoyed by those who are citizens of this incredible city. What marks the citizens of this city is the joy, is that they enjoy a rare measure of peace and composure. Again, chaos all around, all kinds of coming and going, falling and rising. But they are marked by a steadfast purpose primarily because they trust in the Lord. They have the long view. They can see beyond the circumstances in the moment. The Lord maintains and upholds them continually, regardless of what's going on. Their almighty king is on his throne, and they can rest in that fact. Psalm 112, 6-8 describes it this way, Surely he will never be shaken. 
the righteous will be in everlasting remembrance. He will not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is established. He will not be afraid until he sees his desire upon his enemies. We have confidence in the Lord. We can rest assured. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, do you? But I do know this, God is on his throne, and I'm in his kingdom, and I'm a citizen of his kingdom, and his kingdom wins. His kingdom lasts, and I'm part of that. That means I will last. Verse 4, trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah, the Lord, or Yahweh, is is everlasting strength. So the song proceeds to exhort people to put their trust in the Lord, not for a day or for a few days, but rather forever for such trust in him uh, with whom there is no shadow of turning he is the same yesterday today and forever so our confidence and our hope hope is not temporary they have the surest possible foundation the lord is an eternal rock it says literally in the hebrew it would say he is the rock of ages And since he can't waver, neither will the man who is stayed on him or built on him. Deuteronomy 32, 4. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. In verse 5, for he brings down those who dwell on high. The lofty city, he lays it low. He lays it low to the ground. He brings it down to the dust. One of his mighty acts is brought to mind, and that is that he brought a lofty city down. He took them down. It was one of the cities or nations that, uh, that was proud. A proud look is, is one of the things the Bible tells us the Lord hates. He hates it in individuals. He hates it in nations. And this is why the genuine gospel starts with self-denial, dying to ourselves. It's the humble, not the proud, who enter the city of God. The city that was destroyed was lofty. That is, it was imminent. It was famous, presumably strong, if not near invincible. Its overthrow was attributed not to any outside enemy, but directly to the Lord himself. And it was complete. It was brought low, down to the dust. That means to death. These then are two opposing cities, the one of verse 1 and the one of verse 5. They're respectively the personification of the principle of righteousness and of the principle of evil. In, connecting, in, uh, in connection with verse 1, the writer may have had, in, uh, had the image of Zion before his mind's eye, and I think we can fairly project and say the church is the future image of the city that's being talked about here, the kingdom of God. In the second case, we may, uh, he may have been thinking about Nineveh or Babylon, or as we uh, not too long ago went through the book of Obadiah and we saw how Edom was lifted high up and haughty and And God brought them down. It could be all of these. Because they were all finally and utterly destroyed. History is full of such cities. So where is Rome? 
Where is Babylon? Where is the Soviet Union? We could add to that list, a long list. Where will we be? Verse 6, the foot shall tread it down, the feet of the poor and the steps of the needy. The concluding verse of this section rounds out the picture of the total overthrow of the lofty city by showing a a quick glimpse of its ruins. Only thing left were poor people, needy people. So some people survived, but but the city did not. They were all that was left. They outlived the city, which had seemed so mighty, if not almost impregnable. And so don't fret when we see the news, the evening news. That's only a snapshot. Sometimes, and we see this in the Psalms a lot, it looks like that the wicked are prevailing, that they're winning, and that we have been ignored or pushed to the side, disregarded. But that's just a snapshot. Don't fret. It's an old, old story. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 3. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. When they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. In verses 7 through 15, there is a reflection upon God's judgments. Verse 7, the way of the just is uprightness, O most upright. You weigh the path of the just. God is watching. God is sitting on his throne. God is paying attention to what's going on. And when we look at Scripture, we see how God brings about justice in every story. Things might look bad at any given moment, but then our Savior comes to the rescue. God's righteous judgments will prevail. There may be other purposes and motivations for the Lord to bring judgment upon the earth, but the welfare of the righteous is a major factor in what he does. This repeated emphasis on the righteous and what God does for them shows how important God's people are to him. When things, uh, uh, when the going gets rough, he himself weighs or literally makes level the way for them. We say, we can't make it up this hill. God says, well, I'll just level the hill. I'll take care of that. Verse 8, yes, in the way, verse 8, yes, in the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you. The desire of our soul is for your name and for the remembrance of you. This verse indicates that the normal way for God to act is by way of his judgments. The righteous know that and they expect it. They wait for God to perform his judgments. We live in a day where we don't hear much about that. We don't talk about that. Uh, where, where God's people said, oh Lord, bring judgment. Bring, that's another way of saying, bring justice. Don't let the wicked prosper. Cause their foot to slide. Break their arm. Take them down. That's not nice. Oh, yes, it is nice. It's more than nice. It's good because it protects the innocent. It doesn't allow the guilty to get away with it. 
And in fact, our hope is that in the process of God bringing that judgment upon wickedness and guilt is that many of them will turn from their sin, turn from their wickedness, and turn to the Lord. Wouldn't that be great? That'd be good for them and good for us. But if they won't turn from their wickedness, then let them not prosper in that wickedness. God, don't allow this to go on and on. Put an end to it. In fact, while many modern Christians wouldn't even would think that this is even wrong for us to call for God's judgment, this text is telling us that we are actually waiting for His judgment on sin. We are jealous for His name. God is being disregarded. We want the world to see Him act in such a way that everyone knows that He is the Lord. And verse 9 is the verse that first caught my attention about this chapter. With my soul I have desired you in the night. Yes, by my spirit within me I will seek you early. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. This idea of longing for God's judgment is developed more fully in this verse. It becomes obvious here how strongly God's people must have longed for divine intervention The word night here refers to the darkness of affliction. When sin and evil are present, we should have an eager desire for God to act. We seek Him early. Not merely a calm philosophical reflection, more than a sober investigation, rather an eager, impassioned search that was looking for divine judgment or divine justice. Why? For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. You ever see a child that's just misbehaving and the parents aren't doing anything about it? What does the Bible say about that? Those parents don't love that child. They're letting that child go away that's going to be destructive to that child and to other people. But when parents bring judgment, when parents bring about justice, when they bring about discipline, that is love. That is how they go about helping that child change their way into a way of righteousness so that that child is blessed and so that the rest of us are blessed by that child. Well, that's what we want for the world as well. When sin and evil are present, we should have an eager desire for God to act. It often takes a divine judgment to jar them loose from their hold on unrighteousness. Verse 10. Let grace be shown to the wicked, yet he will not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness he will deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. And so you need to remember that as we watch what's going on around us, that we are in the middle of the story, and that's not the same thing as the end of the story. Ecclesiastes 8, 11-13 says, Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed uh, speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men 
is fully set in them to do evil. In other words, people are doing bad things and, and they're getting, they seem to be getting away with it. And so they said, well, let's just keep it up. There's no price to pay. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There's the end of the story. We don't always hear about that. That doesn't always get reported. Psalm 10, 5 and 6 describes the wicked this way. His ways are always prospering. Your judgments are far above, out of his sight. For all his enemies, he sneers at them. He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved, shall never, uh, and I shall never be in adversity. That's how he thinks about what's going on. But if the Lord resorts only to kindly treatment in dealing with those who oppose him, these men, it says, do not learn righteousness. Even though the kindness of the Lord is intended to lead them to repentance, Romans 2, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads to repentance, leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. That's the end of the story, of every story. Personal stories, corporate stories, national stories. Even where God shows his righteousness and grace, even their kindly treatment of the wicked often fails and they're, because they're unimpressed. No matter how much kindness, no matter how much they've been given, they fail to behold, according to this text, the majesty of God. Verse 11, Lord... When your hand is lifted up, they will not see, but they will see and be ashamed of their envy of people. Yes, the fire of your enemies shall devour them. And so we have this picture here of God's hand lifted, as it were, continually lifted to bring down the blow of judgment on their heads. But the wicked remain totally unaware of that, of that threat. They shall see it and be confounded. There is a rude awakening coming. In time, they will be fully ripe for the judgment. And when that happens, it may be described, uh, excuse me, then what happens may be described for their envy of people. Yes, the fire of your enemies shall devour them. Verse 12, Lord, you will establish peace for us, for you have also done all our works in us, or literally for us. 
The song goes on in a word of direct address to the Lord and outlines the positive result that is achieved by God's judgment for the righteous. What does the Lord give us? He gives us peace in the midst of all the turmoil. Again, we're going to have a picture of that in a few minutes when we come to the Lord's table, a table in the presence of our enemies. Here we are having a feast. Here we are having a banquet. Here we are in fellowship and communion with God. Here we are at peace in the midst of all that's going on around us. The word here is taken in that comprehensive sense of total, the word peace, of total welfare and success. Yet to tell the full truth of the matter, the nation must confess its inadequacy and the Lord's sufficiency. You have done all our works for us. Lord, it's all you, not us. We're not here to pat ourselves on the back or to say that you owe us. We're here to say thank you. Just thank you. Verse 13, O Lord our God, masters besides you have had dominion over us, but by you only we make mention of your name. Masters have had dominion over us. Those, those were, so to speak, temporary masters. But God is in charge of the politicians too. Are you worried about the politicians? Are you worried about the last election? God is in charge of all of that. Do you know how long it will take him to topple that over if he decides to do it? And he will. Our hope does not rest in the next election or the next president or the next anybody else. Our hope is in the Lord. He can take care of the politicians. Easy. Very easy. This should remind us that we have only one Lord. We acknowledge only His name and will continue to do so. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Verse 14, just in case you know, it escapes our notice. They are dead. Talking about the past leaders of these lofty cities. They are dead. They will not live. They are deceased. They will not rise. Therefore, you have punished and destroyed them and made all their memory to perish. The story of wicked rulers and nations always ends the same way. They may have loomed large and invincible in their day. But they had to meet the common lot of all the children of men. They are dead and they will not live. They are deceased. They will not rise. Death is the great leveler and it has taken care of them. Implied in this statement is the conviction that the wicked have no future to look forward to. Verse 15, you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified You've expanded all the borders of the land. Remember, this nation is the church. Regarding the city or nation of God, we have not only grown numerically, but we have marched through history and we have outlasted every nation. Rome tried to wipe out Christianity, to burn them at the stake, to blame them for the burning of Rome. There have been persecutions. There have been all-out efforts to rid the world of the Word of God, to outlaw preaching, to outlaw missionaries, to outlaw the gospel. 
It has all failed, and where are they? In the midst of a pandemic or other so-called disasters, including political disasters, God's kingdom is still expanding. It can't be stopped. Verses, 26, uh, verses 16 through 19, picking up the pace here. The Lord, in, tr- in trouble they have visited you. They poured out a prayer when your chastening was upon them. And so when we are in trouble, and much of this has been brought upon us by our own sins, the church, that is, we should turn and pray. That's what God instructed us to do. When we pray, when we turn from our sins and pray, he will hear our voice and heal our land. He brings trials our way for our good. We're predestined for victory, but sometimes we seem far removed from achieving it. And it is this thought that's under consideration in the next two verses, 17 and 18. As a woman with child is in pain and cries out in her pangs, when she draws near the time for her delivery, so have we been in your sight, O Lord. We have been with child, we have been in pain, we have, as it were, brought forth wind. We have not accomplished any deliverance in your earth, nor have the inhabitants of the world fallen. In her entire history up until this time, the nation and people of Israel produced nothing that was of general, uh, of general substantial benefit to the nations of the world. They had been called to do so. God had called them in Abraham to be a blessing to the nations, and the results achieved, though, were negligible. Continuing in this figure used, no inhabitants of the world came or bowed the knee or came to birth. But then the song suddenly comes with a breakthrough of truth that is downright amazing and makes crescendos in eschatological hope. Yeah, you failed. Verse 19, God says this, Your dead shall live. Together with my dead body they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. It's as though the Lord had made a major investment in all his people, and though they were dead, they were at least his dead. Being thus related to the Lord of life, it is reasonable to expect that they'll share in his endless life. He says, your dead shall live. The same group are now called my dead body. We have here an actual indication of the hope of the resurrection. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust. You hear what he's saying? It's like, it's like the valley of, of the dry bones with Ezekiel. He says, I want you dead people to sing. Yeah, you're, you're dead. You can't do anything, but I can. I am the God of resurrection. Apparently, these dwellers in the dust are to be thought of as the dead bodies that now have the prospect of rising again. The dust referred to is the dust of death. The statement is highly poetic when the dead are exhorted to sing, and by virtue of the impending resurrection, that's not impossible. The new life that's held in prospect is now described in another image as due as a dew of the, on the herbs, which is to say an invigorating dew. 
So the song, verses 1 through 19, comes to a climax in a blazing, in a blaze of glorious revelation concerning the, the resurrection of the dead. This aspect of the case still required some amplification in the fuller revelation that Jesus declared in John chapter 5. Now keep in mind, the Bible is one book written by God. And so as we march through and as God gives us more and more, it enables us when we get to the New Testament to look back on passages like this and go, oh, that's what he's talking about. What did Jesus say in John 5? Do not marvel at this. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. And then our last two verses, verses 20 and 21. A nation must wait patiently for God's judgment. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. And so the, the exhortation begins with a call for us to come to him. It's not yet a time of celebration or of joy over ambitions finally realized. It's a time of waiting. In fact, of retirement into solitude. Come. I want you to just wait and see what I'm going to do. Pray, of course. A time of shutting out the noisy world and its turmoil. A pause. And then verse 21, For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. This is a powerful ending to this song. A startling event is going to take place. He says, Behold, look, something's about to happen. To achieve his purpose, the Lord will appear on the scene. He comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. We know that he shall punish all the unforgiven sins of men, but it would appear at this point that there is a particular guilt that is under consideration that is described in the last part of verse 21. The earth will also disclose, uncover her bloodshed and will no more cover the slain. This one offense alone will call for a very specific judgment of God. Action in regard to which the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. In some way, the earth will also disclose her bloodshed and will no more cover her slain. It will surely be an astounding total We could think of many ways to think about this, but just in the last century, the 20th century and into the 21st, probably 100 million people have perished because of wicked governments. 100 million have perished. The great cover-up of the slaughter of the innocent of the abortion mills in our own country, God is keeping count of every last one.
The tale of these two cities continues in our day. This is one more instance where God's mills grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. The nations are cities that have forgotten God, who slaughter their innocent and who are lofty, will certainly be brought down. So we should not be surprised. We welcome God's judgment so that the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. Remember, this song crescendos in eschatological hope. This is our song. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 and 58. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are often short-sighted. Grant to us believing hearts that we might walk by faith and not by sight. Increase our understanding and faith that we might stand on your promises of victory so that we are not shaken any, uh, by any momentary circumstance. There is no uncertainty with you. Indeed, you are our rock of ages. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 through 29. See that you do not refuse him who speaks, speaking of Christ. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Mark Rushdooney, son of the late theologian R.J. Rushdooney, recently wrote this. Shakings are a good thing because they are intended to leave behind what cannot be shaken. That is God's kingdom. My father would often say that the day of the Lord is a continual factor in history and that eschatology is not intended to focus our minds on the end of time. To live in such a way is no life at all. Just as living with the awareness that you will one day die will rob you of life's delight. What eschatology should do is awaken us to the Lord's battles. This is the meaning of one of the first eschatological texts where Adam and Eve are told that the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent are at war in history with the victory being guaranteed to the woman's seed in the end. Until then, we live as participants in that conflict. We, uh, when we take our eyes off the Lord's eschatological purpose in history, we fall prey to the moral quagmire of our current crisis. We end up watching God's landmarks being moved while not working to reinforce them. 
we think God's thoughts after him and then labor to apply his will. And so as we come to the Lord's table today, and as we remember and proclaim his death until he comes, part of what we remember are the implications of his death and resurrection. He has already won the victory. We know how the story ends. Therefore, we can engage every challenge with confidence and vigor. He has risen. He has risen indeed. Let us remember in all of our thoughts of you, O God, that you are God and we are men. And therefore, we ought to be humble. We acknowledge that whatever true knowledge we possess, we first received it by the revelation of your knowledge. And that only as we have come to think your thoughts after you do we obtain any knowledge at all. Your word is truth. Father, your omniscience is of great comfort to us for all the evil conspiracies of men are known by you. No adversary escapes your notice. You can't be deceived by the craftiest men or the most closely guarded secret. Since you know all, you're fit to be our only object of trust. Because you see the secret places, so too you hear our secret prayers, regard our secret sighs, and bless our secret service. You know our sins, you know our frame, you know our needs, But praise you, Father, you also know the righteousness of the Son and the value of his sufferings in our behalf. You understand better than we do what we have committed, and you also understand better than we do what our Savior has merited for us. Without your omniscience, O Lord, the whole world would be mere chaos and confusion. Replace now our ignorance with the knowledge of your word. We praise your holy name, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Amen. Amen.